Welcome back to another episode of Talking Spirituality, a Glastonbury Abbey podcast. I'm your host, Nick Phillips. Our topic today is meditation in the Christian tradition. And my guest is Chris Whittington, founder of the School of Contemplative Life. Chris hosts workshops and retreats, introducing people all around the country to meditation, including recently in May this year, online in partnership with Glastonbury Abbey. This was a three-part workshop over Zoom about becoming places of peace in the world for others. And it's something I took part in myself. I've gathered my thoughts on the experience and today I've invited Chris to discuss some of the concepts and answer some of my questions, which may or may not be common to novice meditators. Welcome, Chris, and thank you for being here. No, it's really good to be here, Nick. Thank you. Um, so now we're conducting this podcast over Zoom um, in just the same way as the meditation workshop was conducted. Um, with the sharp rise in people using video conferencing following the pandemic, uh, many such events have moved online. Now that in-person events are returning, do you think that remote meditation workshops will remain popular? Yeah, I certainly do. Um, in fact, I, I think a lot of people, myself included, have discovered uh, just what a useful medium this can be. And um, I, I think people have uh, uh, discovered that and, uh, and reaping the benefits of that all around the world. And certainly as far as meditation goes, um, people can literally join from anywhere. Okay. So, yeah, during the, during the lockdown, when our practice community grew very quickly, one of the really interesting things that happened, and, and yes, it did surprise me, uh, was how quickly a sense of community built up. So the first thing, meditation does create community. The silence, the shared silence, is a very intimate thing to do. But it was, it was, I know this, but it was lovely to hear people comment on that who were attending. People would get in touch and say, I haven't spoken on a Saturday morning. I haven't heard many of the other people speak, but I feel connected in somehow. And I, I feel this is my community and I'm looking forward to seeing everyone. Mm -hmm. And I, I miss people if I'm not there. Is this normal? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, it is normal. You know, it, it is really normal. So that said, after a year and a half of practicing online, people were really looking forward to fellowship and community physically with each other. Yeah. yeah. When we started having live retreats again, people were really excited about that. So my thought is that going forwards, it'll be a blend. Yeah, yeah. It'll be a blend. People who live in different parts of the country, different parts of the world who can't easily get to a physical retreat, they can still practice on a Saturday morning at our, our free practice sessions. And we will still run uh, events, retreats online. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's quite hard to blend the two together, but having sort of separate ones, it can, it can still work. It can. And I, I think there are ways, if it's done carefully, to, to blend the two together. Okay. If, if it's done carefully, people yeah. are learning how to do this. Yeah. Um, but I think online or in person mm -hmm. tends to be tends to be continue. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, although there is a difference in the experience, I would say personally that I didn't find it any more difficult because it was remote. Um, and or it didn't feel like there was less of a connection to the people in the group being sort of 50 miles away as opposed to being five meters away from them. Um, and I've I've um, had other people say as well that making use of this technology, as you say, it helps reach a wider audience, the people who can't travel. Um, so that can only be a good thing, really. Um, but moving on, um, I'm just going to explain a bit about what we did in your workshop mm. for the listeners. Um, during the workshops, we had periods of silence, time to listen and time to interact and discuss. For the periods of silence, you invited us to sit comfortably but upright, pay attention to our breath and repeat a, a phrase or a word silently to ourselves in order to focus the mind away from the chatter of our internal monologue that seeks to comment, plan, reflect and tell ourselves stories all the time. Um, you urged us, if we became distracted by a thought, to just note it without commenting or becoming annoyed and just return to the practice, um, however many times is necessary. Now, for me personally, having had some experience with Eastern meditation techniques in various forms, I was struck by how similar, in, in fact identical, this seemed to other forms of meditation. Um, the concentration on the breath, the repetition of a mantra, fostering awareness of being in the body. Now, as someone who's interested in comparative religions and practices, I found the similarity really fascinating. Um, I'm aware that you yourself have had training in a Benedictine monastery in the UK, but also a monastery of the Dalai Lama in India. So I wanted to ask, did you find a cohesion, if you like, between the thoughts of different traditions on the practice of meditation? Yes. <laughs> yes. And that's um, always interested me more than the, than the differences. And there are differences. Mm -hmm. Why wouldn't there be? Because how we conceive of this, how we express it, this has developed in in very different cultures, yes, in different times. So it, it, it takes on uh, all of that colouring and flavouring. Mm -hmm. I was always very interested in in that that point of union, and I I remember before I went to Prinish Abbey, the the Benedictine monastery, having a a conversation with the the abbot abbot Aldhelm. Uh, Abbot at the time about this. Uh, Prenish was a very fascinating place because of the richness of its dialogue with different religious traditions. Mm. So you have people like very famous Bede Griffiths, who was a monk at Prenish, and then because of his deep fascination with Vedanta, uh, Advaita Vedanta, um, spent the latter half of his life in a, an ashram in South India, okay. um, exploring uh, the, the points of union and synergy. Uh, my own um, primary teacher at Prinish, uh, Sylvester Houdar, was a, a great expert in, amongst other things, uh, Zen Buddhism, uh, Tibetan Buddhism, and uh, Sufi Islam, particularly the, the thought of Ibn Arabi, 
So it was a fascinating place. In fact, um, uh, uh, Sylvester coined the phrase, the wider ecumenism. Hmm. And I, I remember having a, a walk with the abbot one day before I got there and saying to him, you know, I, I, as an 18 year old, um, I, I can see the differences and you know, they're fascinating and they're to be noted and they are what they are. But my sense is that, and all I could do was try and come up with a little sort of analogy for this was my sense is that if you had a group of people wearing different clothes, speaking different languages, coming to practice together and elements of the practice, uh, which, which you've remembered really well, uh, have a tremendous similarity. Yeah. If they practiced well, if they became still, if they entered the silence that takes us to what is before our words, before our concepts, before our metaphors, if they touch that and were touched by it, then when meditation's finished and they get up and they're wearing their different clothes and speaking their different languages, something will have changed. Hmm. And he, he just looked at me and smiled and said, I think so too. So <laughs> I thought, <laughs> you wanted something there. I want to come here for a while. <laughs> and, and then it only enriched. And I remember another monk there because they had such strong relationships with uh, the, the Dalai Lama and the, uh, and the Tibetans that occasionally young Western seekers would turn up at, at Pranesh and explain that they'd gone to India to learn about meditation and one way or another found their way with the Tibetans who, of course, in their incredibly generous way, friendly way, would in invite them in and talk to them and hugely hospitable. And occasionally say to them, particularly those who, who knew Pranash, you do realize that you have this in your own tradition. <laughs> and they no. And then turn up at Pranish, however long it was later, and and a new journey and a new richness would open up for them. So um, following on from that, what does the Christian tradition of meditation have to say about being in the body? Does it have equal importance as the mind, as it does in some traditions? Uh, people who are unfamiliar with Christian meditation might think that it's about denying the physical and aspiring to get beyond the material. But I know that there are such things as bodily prayer in the Christian tradition. Yes, I, I, I don't, I don't understand how it could not involve the body. Um, and, and it is very curious, isn't it, that um, we, we follow a faith that talks about the incarnation, mm. that really at its heart talks about the, the union of, of spirit, awareness and matter. Mm -hmm. um, a, a tradition that says that the body is the temple of the spirit of awareness. Uh, that our bodies are vehicles and gateways of grace. That matter, creation, is the radiance of the divine. It couldn't be clearer. 
So it's absolutely rooted in the body. Yeah. Um, we, we, we cannot be unbodied. Mm -hmm. So it, for me, I, 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 it, I find it uh, unfortunate if, um, if people get that sort of rather dualistic view and denigrate the body. Um, certainly what the practice of meditation, the Christian tradition is about is, is harmony, mm. oneness. Yeah. And that's it. Yeah. So it, it is, a, it is really a, a holistic practice. It's, it's absolutely yeah. holistic. And at, this is absolutely necessary for our time, of course. Mm. The difference it makes to take that view, to have that understanding, the the radical difference it makes to even get the tiniest glimpse of creation being the radiance of the divine changes everything. Um, in our first meditation, um, so when we were using using phrases, I, I tried using the phrase be still, uh, but my overactive mind just wanted a task to focus on. So I was there con concocting this visualization in my head, um, and which I realize is, is a different kind of practice. And on my second attempt, I used the phrase, do nothing. And that felt particularly powerful because I feel uh, guilty in allowing myself to do nothing if I'm not spending every free moment doing something creative. Um, and I think someone in a discussion used the word decadent. It felt decadent to do nothing. Um, and it's something that seems the harder you try and achieve it, the more your mind resists. And what, what was the advice you gave on that? Gosh, that's an interesting question. And I, I'm, I'm going to comment on a few things that you've said, if I may, sure. um, that, I, that I noticed that are really interesting. Um, oh, it's just... Uh, Wonderful to hear you say that as you were using the phrase, be still, that was the last thing yeah. <laughs> that your thinking mind wanted to do. Yeah. Um, and then, then you picked up another phrase. And, and, the, and, the, and the first thing I'd say is uh, find a, I would call it a prayer word or a short phrase and stick with it. Okay. <laughs> um, if you don't stick with it, then you won't be still. Mm. you'll be running around thinking oh, I better word yeah <laughs> if this is going to work better i wonder if that mm. might work better um this one might be a bit more holy this one might be a bit more contemplative <laughs> you then start get you get caught up in this in this chatter because there is a part of ourselves uh, I, I might call it the the surface thinking mind that you might call it the ego that that doesn't want to be still mm. that wants to be constantly entertained um, it's a bit like a, a puppy uh, that hasn't hasn't been trained. If you think of meditation as training for the mind, uh, without without the training, this this puppy runs around chewing on everything that comes in front of it. And it, it's not, in case any listener might be wondering about this instantly, that the the ego or the thinking mind is bad. Mm. I mean, of course, it's not. It's a gift. We couldn't get through our day without it, without the thinking mind, without a healthy, well-formed ego and sense of ourself. Uh, we wouldn't grow. We wouldn't mature. We wouldn't. It would be difficult psychologically. It's just that 
as someone once said, the ego, we need an ego, we need a healthy ego. It needs to be in the car. It's just not terribly helpful to have it with its hands on the steering wheels all the time. Mm. So, and then on to, you said uh, you, you felt uh, a bit guilty about doing nothing. So that that's interesting to think about whether this is doing nothing. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, because I, I don't think it is. I think it is doing something tremendously creative and tremendously essential. Um, I, I think you're, uh, you're probably an artist or a bit artistic. Mm -hmm. um, you, you probably know and recognize your own experience, how you can struggle and struggle and struggle with something and read or think and reflect. And then you get to the point where for one reason or another, your thinking mind just sort of relaxes and gives up. Mm -hmm. And then in that, what might appear to your thinking mind as nothing, actually there's a tremendous amount of creative integrating so and working on. It's just that you can't observe it. Yeah. Now, the surface thinking mind, if it can't be, ego, if it can't be entertained, if it can't see something, it says there's nothing there. Hmm. But that isn't the case. And someone who's done some, uh, it's difficult to say, uh, to, to understate how important this is, I think, but Ian McGilchrist um, in The Master and His Emissary and his recent work, The Matter With Things, so important to, to understand um, how these different aspects of, of mind, uh, the left and right hemispheres work and our tendency and our training that if we can't see certain types of activity, if we can't see ourselves engaged in certain types of activity, then we say we're doing nothing or nothing of value. I had a, actually I ran a workshop uh, a year and a half or so ago, maybe two years ago for a group of head teachers from Bath and Wells Diocese. So in your area mm -hmm. and Fantastic group of head teachers. And at the end of the session, one of the head teachers, who was clearly so passionate about her work and lovely, and everybody regarded her very highly, said, gosh, this makes sense. And I, I felt it when we had that practice, but I find it really difficult to allow myself me time. Yeah. I just feel like I'm doing nothing. I feel guilty. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't feel guilty, she said, if I was advising any of my staff who were tired or needed to <laughs> but I found it difficult to do it myself. So I said, well, would it help to, to think about what you're calling me time as our time? Yeah. Because when you practice, although there's a part of yourself, surface mind, which is saying you're not doing anything, you are, and at the very least, you are cultivating a particular quality of attention mm -hmm. and you're establishing peace in yourself. Yeah. So when you get up from your practice, and the whole point of practice really is to get up and rejoin life yeah. and bring the gifts and fruits of practice to your life. When you get up, you bring that quality of attention and peace 
however small it is, to the next person you meet, to the next task you do. So you might think it's me time when you sit down, but when you get up, it's actually our time. It becomes our time. It flows out. Mm-hmm. Yes, I feel like you're, you're talking about the, the potential of the space rather than it just being a space of nothing, which is kind of... Yes, I, I don't know what a space of nothing would be. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what it would be. Um, but, but practically, you're absolutely right. Um, meditation is, about, is not about not having thoughts. Mm. That, that's a myth. That only happens when we're not very well. Um, the thinking, conceptualizing mind is an absolute gift. What we're talking about is forming a new relationship with our thoughts, with our feelings, with the content of experience, where we can see what's going on, where we can see our reactivity, and we can come into a more spacious relationship, where we move away from just being the sort of reactive victim of our thoughts and our feelings and our reactions to their witness. Yeah. So we have freedom. Yeah. Um, you spoke a bit about the nature of awareness as well. And um, I think you, you, you were differentiating it from mindfulness, which as many listeners will know, it's, it's become quite a, a popular concept in recent years. Um, and you used a phrase, I wrote this down, um, we move from being self-consciously mindful to being self-forgetfully aware. So is our awareness, would you say this is the same as our consciousness or like a deeper subconscious or something else? The first thing to say is, um, uh, I can't remember the conversation we had, but I think <laughs> mindfulness is tremendously valuable. It is absolutely tremendously valuable. And the gifts that um, uh, secular mindfulness practice brings, you find their, their early fruits in Christian meditation. Um, it, it's another completely different thing if you're talking about the, the sort of greater mindfulness of the Buddhist tradition, mm. which is so deeply linked to and inseparable from ethics, right? compassion, and how we relate to everyone and everything. But coming back to the the awareness, consciousness point, it's a really interesting question. Some people may say consciousness. I just happen to say awareness Mm. because that's my training and that's what I'm familiar with. Um, Normally, I think in common language, uh, I was having a conversation with somebody about this this week, When we talk of awareness, when we think of awareness, we are often speaking about uh, awareness of something. Yeah. Which, of course, is a thing. But I'm talking about or or pointing us at meditation points us towards, disposes us to awareness itself. Mm. A helpful way to think about this, I think, at least I find it helpful, is... If you think about the, the Christian teaching that we are made in the image of God, and as St. Paul says, God, that infinite reality, 
is that in which we live and move and have our being. Well, certainly my teacher at Prinish used to like to say that what is chiefly made in the image is awareness. And if you think of awareness as that in which our thoughts and feelings and the content of experience live and move and have their being, it starts to become a little easier to, to approach. If you think of mind, so what we can see as that which arises in reaction to something to do a particular task, you can think of mind as an activity of awareness. Awareness is its like a, a womb of potential. Mm. It's just there. It's just there. And things happen within it. Yeah. We become very, very preoccupied with what's happening within it and completely overlook or even deny the existence of awareness where it all happens. A nice little um, exercise with this uh, that I did in a retreat at Prinish Abbey last year was we were in a, a beautiful room um, and there were 50 or so people and lots of objects. And I asked just as an exercise, if people could look around the room just for a couple of minutes and then say what they could see. And everybody went round and said the chairs and the people and the coffee area and the, the nice looking cakes and cookies uh, they were going to get in a, a few minutes time and et cetera, et cetera. And, and then I asked if anybody had noticed the space in which all of that was appearing. Hmm. And nobody had. Hmm. Now, in one sense, that's not surprising. Um, it, it, we, we don't, uh, our minds don't, a surface mind doesn't leap to that. Mm. It, it looks for objects. It looks yeah. for things that you grab onto and parcel up and um, and organize. And then we did a little exercise to think if more objects are brought into the room or if all the objects are taken away, does that change the space at all? No. Mm. And if the space wasn't here, those objects would have no place to be. Yeah. So what we do in meditation is through keeping, trying to keep our attention on our breath and for people who want to, a word or a short phrase, we have somewhere to give our surface mind, somewhere to rest, something to latch onto. And then within a moment or a few seconds, it dashes off after a thought or a feeling or a some content of experience and then starts to chat to itself about it. What was that noise at the door? And then you think, oh, that was the delivery person. And what will happen if I don't get it? And the whole story starts to come. We watch that like a film in our head. When we learn to see this and just see it and note it quietly, just notice and then come back to our practice. We're stepping back, we're stepping away, we're putting ourselves into a new relationship. And little by little, as we do that, we start to notice where all these thoughts and feelings and the content of experience appear. 
And then, if we want to, there are all sorts of interesting questions about the nature of where it appears. Yeah. We, we soon discover that unlike all the stuff that keeps coming up and flowing and arising and departing, it doesn't. And it's not changed by anything that appears within it. So whether it's a good thought, a bad thought, an outrageous thought, a holy thought, it doesn't matter. <laughs> what we do with that matters, but in itself it doesn't matter. We're not our thoughts and feelings. We're not the content of our experience. We are where it happens. And even get a glimpse of this can bring people tremendous peace because they realize that what I like to call our deepest me, this depth, depthless depth of awareness is always peaceful. Yeah. It's always present and it's always peaceful. And I really liked that um, analogy of the room and the, of the space that you talked about. Um, another question that I wanted to ask was, do you find that physical place is an important factor? Um, although I know you can meditate practically anywhere, you can meditate on the bus. Do you find like a, a peaceful spot or especially a, a sacred spot like, like the chapels that we have at the Abbey help focus the mind? Um, yes, I'm, <laughs> I'm completely human. Um, so the, 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 general advice is, and, and especially at the beginning, yeah. um, if you can find a place that is quiet, that it has, is, has less going on, that's going to be distracting. Um, that's a good thing because then you can it's easier to begin. It's, it's, it's easier to do the work when you don't have too much to contend with. Yeah. Um, for me personally, I, when we talk about holy places, um, no, not particularly, um, except that they tend very often to be places that have a quality of silence. Mm. Uh, yeah. I know people um, sort of talk about the atmosphere of the Abbey being yes. kind of like, it's absorbed the centuries of meditation yes. and prayer yes. that's gone on there. And that's kind of yes. adds something, something intangible. I completely agree with that. Um, you, you, it's, it's almost as if you can, you can feel the density hmm. of the prayer. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, no, I mean, the good advice is try and find somewhere and certain times of the day for for your planned practice periods hmm. and then bring it into the rest of the day as you can. Yeah. So you can practice very simply and easily. And it's wonderful when you're walking, hmm. like you said, on, on the bus, you might take a few moments at lunchtime. Um, you might remember to practice before a difficult meeting. Um, or after someone has done something that you find deeply annoying. <laughs> it is possible to practice anywhere, like you said. And, and this just happens. As you practice more, it does become rooted in you. 
there are you, you start to notice that uh, you might notice when you're waking up at night or when you're walking I, I find this in particular as your footfall and your breath has a natural rhythm and harmony anyway that while you're walking you just notice you, you just start to sense that you are reciting that you are you are taking on this mind this orientation and it's it's just happening mm. <laughs> And that takes a little while. Well, it's different for everyone. Yeah. And there is nobody who doesn't get knocked sideways by life and stuff coming up. And we just have to do the work. Yeah. And doing the work doesn't mean that you sit there for 20 minutes and have a perfectly peachy, blissed out time. Um, it, it may be like that, but very often it's not going to be because you are in your body you bring your own conditioning and you are who you are at that time. But even if you have to contend with a lot and you're getting distracted 300 times in five minutes, <laughs> 20 minutes, um, you're doing the work, you're, you're getting the benefit. Sometimes people say after a practice session, uh, when they first come to the practice, oh, that didn't go very well. <laughs> Uh, I think you might remember this from the yeah. evening that we had, and I, you say to them, well, what didn't go well? What happened? And I, said, <laughs> I was distracted. Well, yes, you're going to be distracted, but what did you do? Well, I, I eventually caught myself chatting to myself and watching this film in my head, and when I saw it, I came back to my practice. Well, that's doing the practice. <laughs> Noticing that you're distracted. No, noticing how you are that's awareness. That's not failure. That's awareness. That's the work. And then you turn back. It's like you think of, again, this aspect of our mind that's like a puppy. It dashes off after something. Well, let's say you've got it on a little leash and you, you just gently say heel. And, and you have to keep doing it, don't you? Every couple of minutes. <laughs> heel. Heel. And eventually you train it and it learns. It's not going to always behave, it's going to do what it will. But what happens is that you cultivate skills that help you deal with that and an awareness of that. And that changes everything. I wanted to ask as well about sort of the difference between meditation and guided visualization. Um, so as, as quite a visual person, being an artist myself, um, I found that whilst I was trying to meditate in, in various different traditions as well, that um, visual images kind of come up and it's sometimes it's a useful inspiration um, for mm. art, but it isn't the aim of the kind of meditation that we've been talking about. Mm. But when it is the aim, when... Um, like if you're doing a guided visualization, I find it hard to picture the things that we're asked about. <laughs> um, and I think this is this might be related to something that you um, you told me about the, the par paradox of intention, and it's uh, the title of a book that you recommended. Um, still haven't got around to reading yet, um, but I think a lot of people get uh, the two mixed up: med meditation and visualization. Are they are they two completely different things? For you? Uh, uh Yes. Mm -hmm. um, what I'm calling meditation 
And um, what I'm talking about is this stilling of the mind, mm. the, the stilling of the imagination. Whereas there are other forms of meditation which stimulate and encourage the imagination. And I'm not saying those are bad at all. They can be extremely good and extremely important. Um, that, that's not the practice I'm talking about. Mm. Um, so no, the, 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 the practice I'm talking about is where you don't stimulate the imagination, where you don't stimulate thinking. You learn to see it and form a new relationship with it. Because if we find a new relationship with our thoughts, which determine our lives, because that's how life is mediated to us. It, that's what I mean by changing everything. Mm. But guided meditations um, have a, a tremendously rich uh, tradition and variety of forms. Um, wonderful. Sometimes I explain it like this, that it, it's, it's wonderful. I mean, goodness, it, it's an extraordinary gift, the imagination and all the creative faculties that, that we have. When it comes to meditation, it, I suppose it's a little bit like this. We, we practice becoming still and letting go of our ideas, our thoughts, our pictures about life. So we can be just more simply present with life. Mm. If you drop your pictures and your images about life, what's left? Life. Hmm. If you drop your pictures, your images, your stories about another person that you happen to be in the same room with, what happens? You're just with them. Yeah. And if you drop your pictures and concepts of God, who cannot be imagined, who cannot mm. be conceived of, then you're simply present in God's presence. Mm. But I, I don't want to encourage anyone to not be involved in other forms of meditation. Yeah. It's just, it's just that there's a difference. And I don't think people always understand the difference between the two. So it's good to kind of hear the clarification good yeah and um, one of the other things that struck me from the workshop mm -hmm. was um the application of the effect of meditation on daily life and you spoke about becoming comfortable with silence and with taking pauses however long you need and i think um many people find silence uncomfortable so they try to fill it with ums and ahs or the first thing that comes into their mind but um you spoke about taking as much time as is necessary when answering a question to clear space for the truest answer to emerge um, which although it sounds simple it's actually really <laughs> brave and hard thing to do so i wanted to ask has has practicing meditation made you more at ease with how you interact with others uh, <laughs> uh, I, I, I think so. I hope so. <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm told so. Um, yeah. I, 
a lot of what happens, a lot of the the healing and the the gifts, the fruits, you, you don't notice. You, you notice sometimes, you might notice that you've become less reactive to certain things, that you are not as riled or uh, annoyed or whatever it might be, as you might have been before. It doesn't mean you stop being human, not at all. Um, not at all. So you don't stop being human. You don't start floating along um, mm -hmm. in, a, in a vaguely or deeply annoying way. Um, <laughs> or completely otherworldly. No, not at all. It, it's interesting, isn't it, to when, when people say they find silence uncomfortable, uh, do they? How can you find silence uncomfortable? Are they finding themselves uncomfortable or are they finding something or the thought or the fear of something uncomfortable yeah um silence is gracious and generous and accepting and spacious and welcoming but silence often brings us to ourselves and how we are and people can have all sorts of worries, obviously, about what that might mean or what they might find and uh, what will be left of them even sometimes if they stop thinking about certain things. Um, the answer, of course, being, well, you, <laughs> just, just, as, just as you are. It does change things it does make it easier to, to to be in a new relationship with situations with yourself i imagine with it's um, sorry <laughs> i'm i imagine it's quite a useful thing for things like job interviews where <laughs> where you're kind of on the spot and you you want to fill this space but if you take the time yeah i mean you're trying to show them you as a person in in your best form yeah, it, it's um, yeah. I mean, you you possibly don't want to sit in the interview um, in the silence for a few minutes. Um, uh, they that may not be what they want, but certainly being able to come to a situation like that, which are always a little bit unnerving, mm. uh, scary, um, but but being able to come to it in a different way with a little bit more peace to perhaps do a little bit of practice, certainly do a bit of practice before you go in. Hmm. So you can take a different relationship with it. And if things come up, you, you can see it a little better and you can see your reactions a little better. And yes, perhaps instead of just immediately reacting and saying the first thing that comes into your head, which may or may not be wonderful and helpful, mm -hmm. you can feel confident and grounded enough to, to pause. Yeah. Um, that does happen. It does happen. Um, it is something that happens. Yeah, I think that's really useful. Yeah. Yeah. Very nice. And finally, importantly, um, can you say a bit more about becoming places of peace, which was the, the whole aim of the meditation series that you led? <laughs> yes. Um, and, and perhaps just uh, reminding us of some words by a, a wonderful and very holy monk, 
called Elder Thaddeus, who once said, if our thoughts are kind, peaceful and quiet, turned only towards the good, then we influence ourselves and radiate peace all around us, in our family, the whole country, everywhere. We create harmony, divine harmony, peace and quiet spread everywhere. And there's a very simple truth that I think we all recognize here. If our thoughts are peaceful, we radiate peace. If somebody comes down in the morning and they haven't slept well, or they've had a row or something's gone on, even if they don't speak, there's an atmosphere of, of grump. <laughs> yeah. Um, interior peace, however small it is, you feel it, it's palpable. Interior peace gives birth to exterior peace. And this simple work of peace that is meditation helps us establish a little bit more peace and become a place of peace for our neighbor and the world. I, I think this is incredibly important yeah. as a direct practical response to the, the circumstances in our communities that call out for greater peace, harmony, reconciliation. Each of us can commit to this quiet, steady work of establishing a little bit of extra peace in ourselves. We don't, we can be five or 95. Uh, we can have a PhD or not be able to read. It doesn't make any difference. This is a very simple egalitarian mm. practice. It, I mean, it sounds, it sounds just so, so easy, doesn't it? But yet we don't do it enough. No, no, we don't. Um, <laughs> and no, no, we don't. We encourage just the opposite and we, <laughs> we value and only seem to see and recognize the, the opposite. But this meditation is a, a simple way of establishing peace that everyone can engage in. And again, just to, just to go back to Elder Thaddeus, just to underline the point that if we can establish and protect what as Christians we'd call the peace of the kingdom within us, then people will be attracted and benefit from this peace and warmth in us. They will want to be around us. We can be places of peace. The, what you might call the atmosphere of heaven will gradually pass on to them. It's, it's not even necessary to speak about this. It just radiates even when we keep silence or talk about ordinary things. And as I was saying earlier, it'll radiate from us, even though we may not be aware of it. If we do this practice, which establishes more integration, more harmony, more peace in us, well, life still happens and we will react to things. But, and we may not see the, the, the benefits in, initially, but other people will probably before us. From, for a, a Christian, but this is true, of course, for everybody. I think we are, we're called to be places of peace, to be, as St. Paul put it, the, the fragrance, the aroma of, of Christ for whoever is next to us, for the world.
That's really insightful. Um, I think that's all we've got time for today. Um, but thank many thanks for coming on and um, as well for partnering with us to deliver such a meaningful workshop series. Um, I know I got a lot out of it. Um, and we look forward to working with you again in the future. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. And uh, yes, let's do some more. Thank you everyone for listening. And um, if you'd like to find out more about what Chris teaches, um, go to the website, um, schoolofcontemplativelife.com. Thank you. This has been a Glastonbury Abbey podcast. Glastonbury Abbey is an independent charity. You can support us by visiting the Abbey, becoming a member, or donating via our website, glastonburyabbey.com. Mm-hmm.